And before I jump into the text, I want to say thank you. <clears throat> thank you for the texts um, and the emails and, and the prayers this week. Um, I am not on narcotics this morning. <clears throat> um, surgery, I had surgery uh, Thursday morning. Um, they went ahead and got me in, and, and, and it, it, it was... It, Modern medicine is amazing, and um, I am thankful for surgeons and all that good stuff. I feel a million times better. Um, <clears throat> so now the flip side of that is I'm not on narcotics, but I have had a lot of time to study this passage this week, <clears throat> so it may take a lot of time to unpack all of it, um, but that's where we're at. We're in this, this text in Matthew chapter 12. Before we dive into it, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever, have you ever read a passage and thought... I have no idea what this text is saying. Have you, anybody, raise your hand, have you ever, okay, I have no clue what's going on in this text. Well, let me say three things to that. Number one, that's common, and that's okay. Um, number two, that's the role of the church, to dive through texts like that together, to work through them. And then number three, this is one of those passages. This is one of those passages that if you just glance over it, you'll read it and go, I have no clue what's going on. It's, it's incredibly complex because it doesn't really tie into our culture or context really well. So we're going to chew through it, and um, we'll go through that just on the screen above. So let's set the scene, and I think verse 1 will set the scene for us. Again, Matthew chapter 12 in our ongoing journey through the text. Look at the scene with me. Um, the scene we're just going to call a Sabbath stroll, if you will. So verse 1 says this, um, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And that's what the Sabbath should be. The Sabbath is a, a joyful day to rest and to enjoy the fact that God does keep his covenant love for us. And so Jesus and the disciples are strolling through the grain fields and joying this day, being reminded of God's covenant love and his provision. So they're strolling through the grain fields on the Sabbath. That's our scene. And the disciples. And his disciples were hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Um, and as, so as we watch that simple scene unfold, Jesus, disciples, walking through the grain fields. Disciples are hungry. Uh, they gather grain to eat the grain. And that little bitty moment, if you don't catch it, is going to ignite two completely different responses. For some people, that little simple act is going to ignite rage, murderous rage. They're already angry at Jesus, but that is going to change just because of the disciples grabbing this grain. is going to change from anger into now let's kill him. You ever wanted to kill somebody because they plucked some grain and ate it? Anyone? All right. That's how bizarre this is. That's how big a moment this is. But for other people today, I think we're also going to see that it will ignite in some of us incredible worship because of he, what happens here. But let's just kind of chew through that. So that's the scene. Our scene is Jesus, grain fields, disciples, hungry, plucking the heads of grain. Now let's look at the religious leaders. So in this moment, they're going to appeal to a cultural interpretation of the Sabbath All right, with what just happened. Verse 2, but when the Pharisees, there's the religious leaders, this is the PhDs, this is the first ballot elders, okay, this is, this is the, the elite of the elite. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, this would be semi-biblical, 
Okay? I say semi-biblical because I put the verse on the screen for you. Exodus 34, 21 does say this. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. So it was semi-biblical that they looked at this and said, okay, there's, there's something not right about this. But even though it was semi-biblical, it was miles from real truth. The reason I say that is because it was indeed a false teaching. They took that Exodus 34, 21 that simply said, six days shall you work, the seventh day you shall rest. And then what they said was, okay, because of that, you shall not now, our interpretation is, you can't reap grain at all. Right? So it was semi-biblical, but they took it into this whole false teaching, and that you can't reap grain on the Sabbath became one of 39 rules that you had to follow as far as working goes on the Sabbath. I put them on the screen for you. This is in the Mishnah. This is what you couldn't do according to the Pharisaical law. You couldn't sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, bleaching, hackling, I don't even know what that is, dyeing, spinning, weaving, the making of two loops, weaving two threads, dividing two threads, tying and untying, there you go your shoes, sewing two stitches, I can't even sew one, tearing in order to sew two stitches, capturing a deer, slaughtering, <laughs> flailing, salting it, curling its hide, skinning it, cutting it up, writing two letters, erasing in order to write two letters over the erasure, building, tearing down, extinguishing, kindling, striking with a hammer, and carrying out from one domain to another. All of that from Exodus 34, 21. So they took what was somewhat biblical and then made it miles from actual truth. And, and the reason was because God had indeed put the nation of Israel into exile because they didn't keep the Sabbath. And so because they weren't keeping the Sabbath, God said, I'm going to send you into exile. They went into Babylonian captivity. And so what the religious leaders said was, we don't ever want to do that again. So in order to not get exiled, we're going to take the law and we're going to build a fence around it. Then we're going to build another fence around it. And we're going to build another fence around it. And we're going to get these fences so far out that nobody will ever get anywhere close to even breaking the law. Does that make sense? They made law upon law upon law upon law. But the problem was they made that law now their works of righteousness. So just kind of built this out over and over. And so though it was semi-biblical, it was now miles from truth. And I want to say two things about that real fast. Number one, this happens way more than you think it does. We look at that and go bizarre, don't we? But that happens way more than we think it does. Let me give you an example. You've heard me over the past couple of months mention something several times <clears throat> about cleaning the floorboard of your car. To which some people in the room giggle a little bit, and then other people in the room go, I have no idea what on earth you're talking about. Well, let me just bring a little bit of clarity to that. And I say this because anytime there's a public pro proclamation that's preached from a church, you're opening yourself up to public examination. And what has been said and what's been taught in, 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 in locally is this, and, and there was an actual sermon series 
uh, <clears throat> based around the idea that because um, God gives you certain things, if you honor them well, then, then he will bless you more. And it sounds something like this. Colossians 2.23 says, biblical, whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord and not for men. That is biblical truth. And then the application of that text then went to this illustration. So if you're going to work heartily as to the Lord and not for men, a whole sermon series based on this. Therefore, if God can't trust you to keep the floorboard of your car clean, then why would he bless you with anything else? Miles from biblical truth. Took something that was subtle and then switched it into works-based righteousness. This is dangerous. This is subtle. This slips in if we're not careful. And we'll even demand this of our kids, right? I mean, we'll be in the batting cage. Cold dinging off foul balls. And I'm like, Cole, quit hitting foul balls. Well, Dad, I'm... No, no, no. No excuses, son. You work heartily as unto the Lord. <laughs> quit falling off. You're not working hard enough. You're not using your energy the right way. And we'll, we'll subtly buy into this. And it's lies and it's garbage. And we'll twist Scripture. And we'll believe that God will love us if we perform for Him. Not He'll love us because He loves us only in Christ's righteousness alone. We'll twist it. And that's what's happening here. So I say that, number one, for that reason. And then number two, it is subtly and terribly dangerous to take Scripture and to morph it into works-based righteousness. Here's why I say that. Because in looking to uphold the law, which is what the Pharisees did, you'll actually tear down the work of the Messiah. In looking to uphold the law, you'll tear down the work that Christ accomplished on our behalf. And so the lie sounds a lot like this, which was indeed preached in our community to raving claps, which made me want to vomit. God will honor you and bless you if you prove yourself worthy to be honored and blessed. If that's the case, you and I will never be honored and blessed. Because we'll never prove ourselves worthy enough. We can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. You can't keep the floorboard of your car clean enough. But Christ accomplished what you cannot accomplish and never will accomplish. That's the good news of the gospel. And so Jesus appeals to Scripture. They appeal to this cultural interpretation of the Sabbath. And, and Jesus turns and he appeals to Scripture. Let's jump back into our scene, verse 3. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So Jesus appeals to their cultural interpretation, and he gives them Scripture. And so first, here's what he says. Number one, he says, you've misinterpreted the Scriptures altogether. Your approach to the Scriptures, Pharisees, are all wrong. Now remember, he's saying this to the Ph.D. professors of the day. So that in and of itself is not going to go over well. You're interpreting this wrong. So everybody who's in school, try this tomorrow. Try this tomorrow. When you go to class... Stand up and go, hey, um, 
you've got that all wrong, and, and then let's report Sunday and tell us how that went, okay? This is not going to go well. But he, he, he looks at him, he says, you've misinterpreted the scriptures, and he points to two verses, one being 1 Samuel 21, where David indeed ate temple bread. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying David ate the temple bread, which he was not allowed to do, but the scriptures didn't condemn him. Your interpretation of the scriptures are totally wrong is, is the point he's getting at. Only the priests were allowed to eat the consecrated, the, uh, the showbread is what the scriptures say. Only the priests could do that, but David ate it. So Jesus says, you're interpreting this all wrong. Look at David. David ate the bread. David was not condemned. He wasn't put to shame. Here's the point. God's not offended at the fact that David was hungry. And he's not offended at the fact that the disciples were hungry. And he's not offended at the fact that we're eating a little bit of grain. That's what's going on in this passage. And he also, in the same uh, examination, he, he, he's pointing to Numbers 28, verse 9, where the priests, indeed, as Jesus points out, changes bread on the Sabbath, which means that they're doing some form of what? Work. They're working some for them to... To, to even to use the energy to put the showbread out, which means they're engaged in some form of action, some form of work. And so work had to occur. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, you're interpreting the scriptures all wrong. There's a big difference between actions and labor. There's a big difference in the disciples walking around grabbing a little grain and actually working the fields. And the scriptures clearly say, don't work the fields on Sunday, or well, this Saturday, the end of the Sabbath. Don't work the fields on the Sabbath. Don't do that. And then they took that and built law and law and law around it to where now you can no longer even pick up some grain. And so Jesus is saying, listen, there's no guilt in our actions, just like there's no guilt in the priest's actions to put the showbread out in the first place. And so first he says, you've misinterpreted the scriptures. But second... And this is the doozy. He then goes on to say, not only have you misinterpreted the scriptures, you've misinterpreted me. Where does he do that? Verse 6. And I tell you, something greater than the temple itself is here. In other words, if you think the priests had the right to break the law and actually work, which they did because it wasn't work, it was rejoicing and laboring and doing action for the Lord. If you think the priest had the right to break the law, then you have no idea who you're talking to. Something greater than the temple is here before you. I am greater than the place of sacrifice for sin is what Jesus just looked at and told these guys. Remember, the temple, that's their diamond. I mean, that is, their, that is their ground, that's their foundation, that's the core of the community, right? I mean, it, it, the, the Baptist church um, had this revival of family life centers as I was growing up. And you were only a viable Baptist church if you could come aboard with a family life center. And those, in many ways, became staples of the community. And Methodist churches did it too, and all this kind of stuff, to where they truly became centers of the community. Listen, our family life centers had nothing on the temple back in the day. 
It was truly the hub. It was the place not only of communal worship, but it was the place where the sacrifice of sin occurred. And Jesus just looked at these guys and said, not only are you interpreting the scriptures wrong, but I am greater than the temple that you adore. This was a doozy. This blew their minds. Verse 7, he goes on to say, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have condemned, you would have condemned the guiltless, not have condemned. Verse 8, For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, this, not only am I greater than the temple, but the service that I perform will bring you more rest than you can ever accomplish on your own works. He says, I'm the only thing that truly will bring rest. Now, before we go on, have you ever experienced the freedom that's found only in Christ and not your works? Have you ever experienced that? This whole passage calls into question the whole notion, not only of life and truth and rest, but even salvation. Here's the questions I want to ask in light of this, if we read it into our cultural context. Did you walk the aisle at some point and count that as your moment of salvation? As you think back, okay, my moment of salvation, I remember being in that church or that youth rally or that whatever, and I walk the aisle, and you look and you go, that walking of the aisle, that was my moment of salvation. If you are, you're in danger of the same thing the Pharisees got caught up in, depending on your work for righteousness. Did you get baptized and count that as your moment of salvation? Well, I got baptized, and, and that's the moment that I got saved. Well, then you're in danger of letting that baptism become a work, just like the Pharisees. Did you repeat a prayer that somebody said, hey, at the end of a service, hey, everybody, bow your head, close your eyes, no peeking, of course, because it's almost like heads up, seven up. <laughs> repeat after me. You repeated the prayer, and you go, that's the moment I was saved because I repeated the prayer that the pastor told me to pray. If so, then you're in danger of that being a work unto salvation. Did you get all emotional at a church service? I mean, the band was spitting fire that Sunday. Everybody was crying. The smoke was just right. It wasn't too much. It wasn't too light. It just made enough ambiance to where the light was piercing through the smoke. It was almost as if the Holy Spirit was shooting through. Everything was just right. Everybody's crying. And you were like, yes, I feel that. Do you credit that as your moment of salvation? Because if so... You're in danger of being the Pharisee. Or did you have an aha moment where you were face to face with Christ and you said, he is greater than the temple. He is greater than the sacrifice. He is greater than the Sabbath. He is my all in all. And all of a sudden, the substitutionary work of Christ exploded in your heart and you realized all of a sudden, I am a great sinner. He is a great savior. I am unrighteous. He is righteous. I don't accomplish anything of merit on my own. Even my greatest works are as filthy rags, but everything he does is as glory to the Father. Have you ever come face to face with what he can do and did do, you can't do and won't do? 
Have you ever come face to the face with the fact that he stepped out of eternity, wholly lived a perfect life, died a death that we deserved, became that great substitution and said, if you trust in my work and not your own, then I will give you my bank account. I will credit righteousness unto you. Here's why. Because anything you'll ever do, you'll never make the Father smile enough. You'll never sacrifice enough pigeons, which we don't do today. You'll never sacrifice enough doves, which we don't do today. And again, if you do that, we need to talk after the service because I need to introduce you to a couple of the police officers here in the room. Um, I, I, I give, I serve, I whatever, I blah, blah, blah. If you're repeating I this, I that, or the other, have you ever come to the point where you go, it's not what I do or don't do, but what Christ did on the cross for me. That's substitution. That's the gospel. That's the moment of salvation. Have you ever come there? Have you ever come to that place where you just bowed at the cross? He said, nothing that I do. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the, do we have anybody that knows this hymn? Simply to the cross I cling. There's about four of us in here over 40. (laughs) That's the point of salvation. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's all about me. And it is nothing about you. And that, in the Hebrew and Greek, ticked off the Pharisees. Luke 6 tells us another thing happens on another Sabbath, as we'll just continue, which ignited another deadly debate. Now, I know we're going through Matthew, and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This seems to happen on the same day. It doesn't happen on the same day. The reason we know that is because Luke 6 tells us that it didn't happen on the same day. So there's a jump, there's a break here in the text, but this is another day, another Sabbath debate that become deadly, explode, that we're going to look at as well. We'll continue in Matthew. It goes on to say this, that the religious leaders are basically now appealing not to cultural interpretations of the Sabbath, but now they're appealing to what is the essence of good. And they're defining good in the same way as being religiously superior or morally upright, or um, pious, or piety, okay, doing works of righteousness, Uh, self-based, clean the floorboard of your car effort, okay, this is what's going on here, verse 9, and so he went on from there, is the way that Matthew says it, that he went on from there is literally weeks, if not months, possibly even a year, okay, he goes on from there, and he entered into their synagogue, in verse 10, And there was a man there with a withered hand. So remember, we were talking about grain a minute ago, plucking grain. Now we're talking about a man with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Lord, we know you think it's lawful to eat grain on the Sabbath, but what about healing on the Sabbath? And they said this so they might accuse him. So the context here, uh, according to Scripture, is number one, healing... um, is a little different than today. We see it as a miraculous moment. Healing that they're talking about here was the working of medicine. Okay, the Pharisees didn't claim to have healing powers. Okay, so when they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, they're not talking about a miracle. They're saying, is it lawful to do works of medicine for someone on the Sabbath day? Okay, so it's still the same working thing, okay? And number two, it was indeed permitted to do that. If you're a nurse in the room and you're like, why would Jesus ever 
not allow somebody to do that. If you're a nurse, it was allowed to do this, but only if somebody's life was in danger, okay? Which in this moment is not the case. It's just a withered hand. So this is what they're trying to catch him in. So they're appealing to good based on, remember, we think God likes it when we are morally and religiously superior, when we do good works, when we build laws around the law so that we never get anywhere close to offending God. So if God says that we don't need to labor, then therefore we shouldn't do the works of medicine on the Sabbath. Does that make sense? We're going to be morally superior. And Jesus appeals to good as the quality of just being benevolent and beneficial. Verse 11, and he said to them in an answer, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? (laughs) In other words, Pharisees, if it's good to rescue sheep, why on earth would it not be good to rescue men? So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was fully restored, healthy like the other. Verse 14, so the Pharisees clapped for him, put him on stage, and told everybody how awesome this miracle was. Right? Oh, no, dog. No, 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 no. Uh, you, you see, if you do something like this today, they're going to put you on stage and try to uh, start a, uh, a telemarketing, um, send me some money type thing, okay? No, 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 no. This is not what happened. But the Pharisees went out, conspired against him how to destroy him. Did you catch the little phrase that ultimately gets him pinned to the cross in that verse right there? Did you catch which one it was? it might catch you off guard because you may think, well, it must have been the miracle. No, 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 no. What pinned him to the cross was this little phrase here. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That's what got him pinned to the cross. Their question was, can you heal on the Sabbath? Their idea of good is we don't work. That's what's good. And he says, no, 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 no. It is good to be benevolent and beneficial. <clears throat> so two things are at play here. Number one, he rejects totally their notion of doing good. The implication of what they're doing is pretty striking. They obviously believe that one of the things they're doing is good because they're doing it, and what they're doing is walking around handing out demerits. They're judging people. They are actively condemning people. Like that's what they think they should be doing on the Sabbath. Did you catch that? I went to a college coming out when the Lord saved me and called me in a ministry. I, didn't, I just was like, hey, I'll just go to Bible school. Which one? I don't know. Which one? Everyone has Bible on it. Okay? That is a bad way to pick a college, for the record. <clears throat> in doing so, I ended up at a place that I like to refer to as Southeastern Bible Prison. And um, 311, the band 311, if, if you have any idea who 311 is, all mixed up, don't know what to do, next thing you turn around and find the person is you. Okay. Um, like, they were my jam. Like, that's who I, that was my people group. Um, and I literally was listening to that in my truck, and I didn't even have a big thumping speaker system. 
I drove in, in the parking lot listening to this and went to school, came out, went back to school the next day, and the dean called me into his office. And I'm like, shoot, yeah, I've only been here a month. I'm already getting recognized by the dean. This must be awesome. <clears throat> I walk in, and he hands me a piece of paper, and he says, I'd like you to know that you've been written up for listening to secular music. <clears throat> to which I said, number one, what does that mean? <laughs> um, and then they explained it to me, and I thought, WT, insert whichever letter you want to insert. <clears throat> and so I was like, oh, I didn't know that we couldn't do that. I didn't, I, I didn't know that was okay. I didn't, I'm no more 311. Um, shortly after that, I threw it in Bayview Lake, along with Hootie and the Blowfish, Dave Matthews Band, um, all the other CDs that I've been trying to recoup over the past several years. Went into the lake. Um, and then about two or three months later, um, I had left the gym, which there was a gym, and we were shooting basketball, and I had left the gym and went to my car and went to work, which is a normal thing to do. Uh, showed up the next day, Dean called me into his office again, which at this point I knew that's not a good thing. <laughs> Walk into the Dean's office, he hands me another slip, and he says, Troy, we're going to have to have you clean the bathrooms. Why? <laughs> I have not listened to 311. Dave Matthews is drowning in the bottom of Bayview Lake. I can hear the screams of Hootie and the Blowfish screaming, rescue me. Time, come get me, Troy. Um, I haven't done anything. And he said, well, you've been written up because you wore shorts from the gym to your car through the parking lot. Yes, which I didn't know my legs were that sexy, but apparently they are. <laughs> and if you've ever seen my legs, you know that's not true. And, and so I had been written up because I didn't, that was one of the rules. You, to, to avoid lust, then you can't walk from the gym to the, you know, wearing shorts, all this kind of stuff. And so here's the deal. They're handing out these demerits based on works, and the Pharisees are doing the same thing. And they think that's good. They go, this is good. We are really good people. We're protecting the righteousness of the Lord by our works of condemning others. If we're not careful, we'll do the exact same thing, won't we? This was all fun and games till it pins back on us, doesn't it? So that's at play here. And then number two, he authoritatively declares what is indeed lawful. That's what gets him pinned to the cross. Why? Because only the Lord has the right to declare, this is lawful. And Jesus squarely says, I have authority to do this because I am the what? I'm the Lord. And oh yeah, to prove it, here's you a real miracle. Y'all don't want to do works of nursing I'm just going to heal this dude's hand. Pow! And it blows their minds. And they don't know what to do with him. And number three, they fully understand what he's doing and what he's saying. So, their angry thoughts have now turned to murderous thoughts. And there's more on that later. But at this point, Jesus declares his lordship over their lives and our lives, and that's what gets him in trouble. This whole thing plays out 
like that meme that's going around with the ladies and the cat. <laughs> like this whole story is that meme, right? You can't do that on the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath. The temple gives us regulations. I'm greater than the temple. The Lord only has strict rules. I'm the Lord. And so lastly, Jesus responds as only the Messiah would respond. As what's prophesied in Isaiah 42. Let's look at that as we wrap it up today. Verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him. And he <laughs> healed them all. And that does mean miraculous works. Verse 16. And ordered them not to make him known. If you underline your Bible, that's a great line to underline. And he ordered them not to make him known. Verse 17. This was to fulfill what the, was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Jews. Right? No. To who? The Gentiles. Verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. You see at this point. The leaders. The religious Jewish leaders. They want to loudly debate. And the crowd wants to loudly make him king. And all Jesus wants to do is quietly fulfill his role as the Messiah. Proving that he is indeed Lord. D.A. Carson sums up the whole passage this way. It'll be on the screen above. What is pictured is a ministry so gentle and compassionate that the weak are not trampled on, praise the Lord, and crushed till justice triumphs. And for such a Messiah, the Jews were little prepared. Church, Christianity, faith, Religion is not about a God who wants to beat you into submission until you do enough good works that he finally smiles at you. The gospel is about a gracious, loving Lord that knows you are bruised, that knows you are weak, that knows you are broken, and gently walks in and says, because you can't fix yourself, I'll fix you. Let our church always model the true gospel in action and words. As the band comes back up, how does this apply to us today? Unbeliever, I want to say something to you. If you're in this room and you go, man, I don't know that I've ever trusted in Jesus that way. If you're an unbeliever, let me say this to you. Because Jesus is greater you don't have to be greater. Jesus is greater. So if you're an unbeliever and you go, no, 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 I've got, to, I've got to at least be good enough, stop. You won't be good enough. Jesus is. Trust in Him. Let your salvation not be walking an aisle, joining a church, whatever, getting baptized, and all those things are incredibly important. Salvation is face-to-face -face with his righteousness and your unrighteousness.
Call on him. I repent. I, I repent. I trust. Now. I am seeing you greater than ever before. I trust in you, Jesus. Give your life to him, unbeliever. Believer. Because Jesus is greater, don't slip back into thinking that you have to be greater. That's what the Pharisees did. Count on what you've already counted on. Jesus. And on the screen, pop those three things up real fast. How does this apply to us today? Just a couple of things I'd love to say. And I always, I always have people after the service go, I wish you'd spend more time on the application slide. As somebody, some already do, pulling out phones now, taking pictures. I see you, okay? I wish you'd spend more time there. No, 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 no. We're never going to do that, okay? Get the application. Go chew through it. Um, we'd rather spend our time on the text. But here's some application. Number one, Jesus is greater than the temple priest and Sabbath day. We'll never find righteousness in religious works, only in Jesus. We'll never find joy in rituals, only in a relationship with Christ. Number two, Jesus' authority as Lord is still the greatest stumbling block in life. We can never accept Jesus as Savior, how to get saved, and not accept him as Lord, how to live. Number two, we can never define good in terms other than what Christ has defined as good. In other words, we can't use because I love God, I choose to ignore that person. I wish I could preach a whole sermon on that. Buddy, we're quick to do that, aren't we? Because I love God. I don't want to get dirty by sitting next to that person or go in that person's house. We can never use, I love God so much that I ignore that person. Okay, I got to get my... Number three. Back up. If you're going to live for Christ and let him be your savior, your life will probably get dirty and it'll probably make you uncomfortable when you live out loving like Christ loved. Okay, number three. Jesus' exclusive messiahship is the greatest news in history. He isn't out to break us, crush us, or beat us into submission. He cares deeply for the meek. The weak, the humble, and the broken in spirit. He alone can atone for our sins and reconcile us to the Father. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this text. As we now respond to it, God, I pray for the unbeliever in this room who has trusted, like the Pharisees, Maybe in their own works of righteousness. If I just do this, God will love me. If I just do that, God will love me. If I just whatever. God, I pray for that unbeliever that today will be the day of salvation. That they'll trust in you. Your work. You alone. And I pray for the believer in the room. God, our tendency is, is to trust in your substitution. And then want to prove it. By building more laws for you. <laughs> God, that we will just rest. Our church will rest in the finished work 
of the cross. And because the cross is the finished work, we can't make it more shiny. (laughs) We can't add any more beautiful jewels to it. We can't elevate it any higher. We can't make it glow anymore. We can't add to it. It's Jesus plus nothing. (laughs) And that we'll rest in that, Lord, as a church. And proclaim that to our community. So God, now we respond. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand?